out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Yes, thank you, Jim. That does sound very deep, meaningful, and slightly pretentious. Anyway, this is David Eastall. This is the C86 Show. I've been delving deep into the archives and came across this interview that I did with Dave Hill, he of Slade. This was just before Christmas, I think 2017. He had just done a book titled So Here It Is, How the Boy from Wolverhampton Rocked the World with Slade. Um, it's still available from all good bookshops and online, as if we do that sort of thing. Anyway, this is the interview. It's quite long, but it's quality chat. And Dave is a great person to interview. Anyway, this is the interview. An amazing new book that you have written. So um, one of the one of the kind of classic kind of in the kind of rock biographies, actually. So did it just, to, you know, to focus on the book for the moment, I mean, when did you get the idea to write it? Um, a long time ago. Um, but I, I stopped and started. I, I thought, ooh, you know, this was, uh, this was pre-Apple. This is before Apple computers, or at least I'd ever heard of them. Um, and it was be a good 25 years ago. So it was sort of like, ooh, Got to be typing this on the PC, and I, and I mean to be honest with you, maybe it wasn't the right time for me to do it. Although it was a good idea, I thought to myself, oh, and then I just put it off and put it off. And then when I went back on the on the road uh, 25 years ago uh, with um, the Slade as it is now, um, I I accumulated so much knowledge and so much experience. I had 25 more years, plus the stuff that you you will read in the book that's happened to me in those 25 years, you know, hence, I don't know, all the good things, but then again, the stroke, and then again, the depression, and various things I've had to come through during the last 25 years, with all the good things, then it was like the wife was going on to me saying, oh, isn't it about time you wrote this book? And then my son's going on to me. <laughs> and they're all in their 30s and 40 years of age, right? And said, so, Dad, you ought to write a book. You know, it'd be really good. And I was thinking, you know, I'm 71. Well, I was young, a little bit younger, three years ago, actually. Uh, so I was late 60s. And it was a bit like, you know, if you can remember things, which I can, it, it seemed... So off I went to London to try and find a publisher. And then I did... I did make some inquiries, and then I found somebody. But that's, that publisher didn't actually take me on. Yeah. But it led to somebody. It led to somebody in the meeting, which would be my right-hand man to actually get the book written, because I hadn't got a book written at the time. So it was a bit like, well, you haven't got a book, Dave? It's a bit like, you know, you go to a record company, but you haven't made the album. Yes. You want some money, <laughs> you know. So it's a bit like, well, you haven't got an album. No, we need to get the money to make the album. So it, it was all a little bit awkward because you go to big publishers like HarperCollins and Simon & Schuster and Penguin and all those people. They're vast companies, and a lot of them uh, are, are run by quite a lot of young people as well, which don't have a greater knowledge of of my past, you know, or don't know much about the 40s and 50s. 
And therefore, unless you're currently on TV or something's happening or, or, or you're digging dirt, it's all those sort of aspects. And the book, the book world is a very, a very, not hostile, but a very difficult place because A, they've got to look at their marketing teams. They've got to look at their sales figures. And they look to everything that's ever been published before by a member of Slade. And then, then they think about whether they're taking one. And I couldn't get anywhere, but this guy in London led me to a company called Unbound, uh, who it was absolutely great. I met this guy at Unbound, and he reminded me of Brian Blessed, the actor. And I met him, and he was so charming and so, so knowledgeable. Uh, he just sat with me and said, look, the way we work our company is, um, it's, it's like a crowdfunding thing, you know, and yeah. uh, 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 sort of uh, based on the idea that you write the book you really want to write. You don't write a book that some company wants you to write and you're allowed the freedom to do so. But the fans, Slade fans, were such an asset at this particular time because they wanted me to write a book. So they were quite prepared to put in some dough right at the beginning to help get the thing moving. And it was, it was just, it was the, then it gave me a kind of relaxation period of sitting with this, uh, with, with my, my right hand man who led me to this company, which led me to also to the method that would be best for me is the storyteller side. I am a storyteller. So in other words, Write it down as you're telling the story. So that whole book, if you can imagine, it's like the conversation you have with me now. You're talking to me. I'm telling you something. But that book is, the whole of that book is me talking to you about what happened. And that's the best way I put it across, Dave. It was just like, rather than sitting at a a laptop or, or a Mac or anything like that, and then typing something and then looking at it thinking, oh, does that sound right? I didn't have to think about that. I just, it's almost like the whole book is like an audience with me. Yes, absolutely. And, and I, I feel, and the ghostwriter who worked on the, the, the book, who is a, a local man from Wensbury, knows the way I talk, understands the accent, and therefore interprets your voice into words, as you've said it. So that book, people have told me that, people who know me said, it sounds like you're talking to me. I said, it's exactly what I wanted to do. So the whole focus of doing this book, in the original question you asked me, was that it should be done now. I've experienced so much more. I've got five grandchildren now, which I didn't have three or four years ago. Well, I had one or two but I've had more since, you know, my family. Yeah. I've got more to say. And also I found the way to say it. And also the, the, I, the wife said to me, he said, a lot of people would be interested to know um, that you suffered certain things because most people see you as a happy-go-lucky pop star who's always smiling and on was on TV, massive number ones. I wanted to put across... Also, the slightly darker side of my life to actually, and in actual fact, it turned into a little bit of gold the other day. Mm. I was in Worthing and uh, I was stopped in the street by a, a fan 
who just uh, just came up to me and he said, Dave, I bought your book. I've read it. That story about your depression really helped me, Dave. He said, because I'd give up. Right. I'd give up on me. And he said, I, I've been depressed for years. I got rid of the psychiatrist. I, 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 I'm not well, he said, but reading your story... I'm going to make an appointment on Monday. I think that's exactly what he said. <laughs> I'm going to make an appointment. And I was, it was a bit emotional, you know. It was a bit like, that's only one story, but it was yes. a bit sort of like, if you can make a difference to somebody's life, you may say there was a good reason to write the book anyway, but I may make a difference to a lot of people's lives. But the other thing is as well, Dave, is uh, that at this time of year, when people think of our band and the, the Christmas song. Also, people think about Christmas presents. And it, in a way, I thought, well, this is a good time of year to, to release it. Yeah. And next year, there'll be a, uh, a further uh, development of promotion on the book. Yes. Because they're going to do some other things to keep the whole thing alive and going. So at the moment, I'm going through the process of being an author, which I've never been before. <laughs> you know, that's an achievement. To achieve a book, I can say, well, you know what, Dave? It's a bit like whatever happens, whether it sells well or it sells okay, it makes a difference to someone's life. There are a ton of reasons that, that I've done this book. And the best, probably the best reason is that my grandkids will read it when they're older and, and they'll, when I'm gone, you know, they can say, oh, this is your granddaddy and, and this is what he did. And also it's a timepiece on history as well. If you look at the past in 1946, when I was born, I grew up a time of austerity, ration books, council houses were just being built, the great sort of working man's dream, you know, a house with a toilet and a bathroom in it. Yeah. You know? <laughs> but prior to that, it used to be in the garden. Absolutely. But post-war Britain was pretty drab, you know, and, and most people didn't have... Uh, any kind of look they all look like their mom and dad in those days you know when you're growing up in those years so there's a social history thing in this book as well about you know the back doors of houses being left open you come home late at night and you get in the back door there wasn't a case of oh you've got to put 10 padlocks on you know because you might get mugged it wasn't like that when i grew up and it was all you know, it's surrounded by bombed out houses after the war. You could play them as kids and you'd go in the woods. All those things I wanted to put in the book to, to make people look at, oh, blimey. God, I, I mean, I know there are some things good about today, but there are a lot of things which are pretty horrible, aren't they? Yes. So I just wanted to say, you know what? There was, there was a lot of things in my childhood that we used to think it was a bit rough. But when you actually look in perspective, it was pretty good, actually. You know yes, what I mean? absolutely. But <laughs> because you did open up a lot about your childhood and especially your your parents, and and there was that sort of, I suppose, I suppose, quite shocking bit where your your dad, you know, goes upstairs to find oh, yeah. your mum in in the bedroom with a scarf around her neck and uh, yeah, uh, yeah, I know that was shocking stuff. Uh, it's it's hard to um, it's hard to perceive what you actually feel when you're that young to know how to try and connect to because I didn't have a greater understanding at that age I'm probably about eight or nine or ten I was really young and I was sent to bed and then you know this happened and and for, for mom to do that um and then of course dad comes in and realizes it's, it's a big it's a big she she does she did bizarre things 
because of the the aspect of our, I feel that she was always conscious of being a, of a punishment upon her to having a child that um, was at a time when it was taboo to have a child and not be married, but have a child by a man who was married, and we don't know who that is. But it was never really talked about in our house, and and to be honest with you. We always thought mom and dad were married and they weren't married, but that didn't bother me. I wouldn't know. But the incidents that took place, you could look at a woman like my mom and say, what a brilliant woman, you know, teaching shorthand to neighbours' kids, top jobs in offices and coming home with a smart suit on. I looked like a member of parliament. You know, she didn't look like a... Uh, uh, a physical wreck with mental problems, but inside there was a whole other thing going on, and uh, and I mean she shammed it, and then and then as I say, I go and break a window, and then all of a sudden it's like another punishment, you know, and then and then one day she came in and she put my granddad's plaque on the wall because my granddad was a doctor of music, you say, and she obviously looked upon granddad as being a, a, a quite a special man, her father, and puts the plaque on the wall because I've done something wrong and points to the plaque and said, he's a good man. And my granddad's named David, you see. So I'm going, how do I equate her doing that? Why would she do that? As if, but then I, I, I obviously know a lot more now. Yes. I mean, the death of my half sister, can you imagine carrying the guilt that she did because bearing in mind I don't know if I said it in the book but my mother's mother ended up in some sort of nut house and and died so you've got that one thing going on and I found in a loft I don't know if it's in the book but I went back to my old council house and in the loft this woman said oh Dave coming in she said uh, I found some letters in the loft. And when I actually looked at the letters, one was her mom writing to her sister. I'm not sure which which sister. But she's talking, I'm one years of age, right? And I'm reading this, and then it says, oh, he's one, and he seems quite bright. She said, if it wasn't for David, I'd probably want to end it. And that's what the letter says, you know. And then on one, and she's thinking like that. But you see, we didn't see it all at first. No. I mean, I, she goes to work, Dave. She works in an office. And I think that was a escapism into doing something, providing, I don't know, money for holidays and all those. My parents were working parents. There wasn't really working parents in those days. Most people had moms at home waiting for you to come home from school, but I didn't. Yeah. When we came home from school, we we were called latchkey kids, if you know what that means. Yes. But it means, you know, you, you, you know, let yourself in, you see, or, or that sort of stuff, you know. Because moms at work till gets home at six o'clock, you know, and uh, it wasn't like every day, Dave, that, that, that mom was freaking out. But what is noticeable and what I do remember is that Every time we went on holiday, she wasn't well. She always seemed to be booking against anything that seems to bring some form of happiness. 
uh, and yet intermingle with her. She was a smiler like me, you know. And if you go and talk to the neighbours about her, they go, oh, your mum was a wonderful woman. Oh, yes, she, she really helped my daughter get her first job in the office and, and this and that and the other. Of course, David's a shame what happened. Yes. You know? I mean, they weren't fully aware of what she was like day by day, but Dad was. But their, I think their marriage was, was good for each other. Dad was married to another woman that wouldn't leave him. <laughs> Mom was cutting a child out of wedlock. But coming together, they, in a sense, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for that marriage. I mean, uh, in in the long run, I wanted to talk about it because I went to, uh, I think it was BBC Radio Coventry, and a woman, uh, uh, I sat with her on, on the air, I, I know her, she said, oh, your book, Dave, said, your mother, I said, she said, I, I was in tears when I read about your mother. She said, it must have been hell. You know, and, and and yet you can't fully understand when you're as young as I was what hell is, because yes. I was still playing with kids in the neighbourhood and I was going to school like any other kid. But in between it, there were these incidents where, as you know, the uh, the scarf around the neck or, or you know, granddad's play, there were interplays here and there. But having said that, um, we didn't have a bad childhood. We... We had a good dad. We had a good mom, but but we had someone who who became unwell, and then of course eventually she ends up having electric treatments and all that terrible stuff, and goes into Stafford. I mean, it's so hard because I, my first job was got by my mom at Tarmac, yeah. and and I was working at Tarmac for a year or more, and I used to ring mom up, you know, because mom had, was a building supplier company and she was a secretary there. And they used to send stuff to Tarmac, like bricks and road stuff. And I used to ring her up, and she sounded great. You know, Dave's got a job in Tarmac, you know, and all this kind of stuff. But it went from that. And then my sister died, my half-sister. And she went from working in that office, damaging her hand, out of work, right? Yeah. And she was in Stafford in two weeks. Now, Stafford in the Midlands, is referred to as a nutty place, right? But she ended up, and I had to go and visit her and get time off work at Tarma to go and see her in this Stafford place, which I tell you what, that that was the hardest part. Walking in there with everybody jittering and shouting abuse at you when you walked in. Because when you go into those places, people are, people have raised their voices, like, what are you doing here? Don't sit there, you know, and they shout at you, you know. And I feel like, you know, I'm 17 years of age and this is like not where I want to see my mom, you know, just going to get out of there, you know. I I feel so sorry for that that I wanted to write it because I thought, I know I've had, I've had quite a life and I'm still having a good life and there's a lot of good things. But in a sense, I feel a little anger in me that she couldn't enjoy my success and she carried this kind of, whether it's guilt that God is punishing her or all that stuff. Bearing in mind in those days, uh, religion was very strong and the granddad played church organ and 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 mom's mom was a school teacher, you know. So they were all quite intelligent 
and they all lived in a private house and they had a car. So I think they were a bit upmarket family, you know. But I didn't know some of the things until I went in, went to write the book and go and visit um, Mom's sister's son, who's 70-odd, yeah. and he was at my birth, and he was seven. And, of course, he just comes out with this. Of course, you know about the fake wedding, don't you, Dave? And I'm going, what fake wedding? <laughs> I never do this, a fake wedding. It it was almost amusing when I found out. I thought, do you know, and in in all my thoughts of a, of of mom, and I haven't really mourned her death because I felt I lost her um, long before she died. But 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 it was a it was a slow decline, and you know things weren't good in those days. They, no. they, you know, the treatment wasn't good. The drugs weren't good. The therapy wasn't good. I mean, it ain't that great now. I mean, it's better, but it ain't that great. There's a lot of people depressed. Yes. You know, more, actually. Would, <laughs> yes. Young people as well. So I just thought, you know, although there's a lot of fun in that book, there's a lot of humour and there's a lot of exciting things. In a way, coming, being on top of the pots, and I can imagine mom staring at the screen, I mean, she knows it's me, but so, sometimes she she wasn't with us at all. Yes. It was almost like, um, how can I put it? Um, you come home and she'd just be mumbling some words under her breath and just sitting there, you know. Dad, of course, in a way, I suppose my success really helped Dad because he was very proud of me, you know, and, and you know, he used to... You know, when I left home, I mean, I was still with them. When I had three number ones, I was still with them. And then I left. And then when the fans couldn't get me, they used to get Dad's autograph. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, and he wore the T-shirt. I mean, it was, there was a lot of brilliant times. Yes. But I think my career or going out on the road when I was 18, when I left that job, I think I wasn't seeing a lot of it at home then. I was out with Nod and Jim and playing up and down the country. I was totally into what I was doing, like like most teenagers are. Yeah. And and they say we're all selfish at that age, but really, basically, we're just making a life, aren't we? And I, and I think I, I so needed to to make headway in something I really cared about. And and sort of having done a lot of interviews with bands, I noticed that most of them that I've found have this kind of a five-year kind of arc. You know, they get together, they, they sort of realise they make a noise which is, you know, relatively good. They do a single, possibly the album. They do a tour. And then within that five years, often when it's second album and, and there's sort of another tour, and if they ever do America, that often seems to be the thing that breaks most bands, um, things come a bit to a crashing uh, cliff, I suppose. So mm. how did it how did it go with Slade in those kind of early years? Cause... Well, I think the groundwork of a lot of bands is different now because it's more about reality shows. It's more about, I want to be famous, I want to be famous quick. I want to get as much money as I can. I want to get out. You know, there's not everybody that has the same philosophy of uh, working for something and spending years. Whereas in the uh, 60s, um, with the success of the Beatles and the Shadows and Cliff and all those kind of people, the Stones, all those bands had worked for years um, long before they yeah. became successful. Slade, in, you know, was formed in 1966. And I reckon 
if you look at 1966 to 1970, when we just started to break it. So we had a good four years together before we really started to get somewhere. Yeah. And we had to meet Jazz Chandler in a way we did meet him to have someone who could steer the ship. You know, he could see the talent in us, but it needed someone who had the connections, also understood the music, also loved us by the way he did and produced us, but helped us with our direction to get known, to have the right publicity, because he felt he'd found something after Hendrix, when Jimi Hendrix and his party company just found us. And he he always loved us. He loved what we did. He thought we were original. Um, in a sense, he likened us to uh, the next generation Beatles. Right. He thought we were like the Beatles to our 70s generation. Not the Beatles, of course, but likened it to yeah. nobody's as, as big as the Beatles, but likened it to originality. I'd say what you're talking about with albums, we had quite, uh, we had a lot of albums out. Um, it started off with a live album, which was absolutely huge, it was in the charts for two years, this live album. And that was just our stage show that we'd always done. But people loved it across the world. They really liked it. It's called Slade Alive. But after that, then we made a proper album. And of course, we made an album with a famous fist on the front called Slayed, <laughs> right? And we made an album called All New Borrowed and Blue. We, we, the, every album had a title. One was Nobody's Fools. So we made, probably within three or four years, we'd made an album a year at least. Uh, if not more, we were always recording something or, you know, it's a bit like being in America at, in July and recording a ruddy Christmas song when it's bullying us in New York. You know, I mean, we were doing things between gaps, but we kept it because you can look at a lot of groups that have about four to five years yeah. in those days of real success. And we had that. We had six number one and 20 odd 20-odd top tenors. Um, now, if you look at it now and the philosophy or the way it is, A, there isn't the vinyl on the table. It used to be always vinyl with everybody. You do have vinyl now, but it's not, it's not the only format you can choose. You can just download the stuff. Whereas we didn't have the download. So everybody bought the product from a record shop. And in a lot of cases, mates played it to mates and then the mate buys it and that's how it was. And also the amount of records we sold, bands today do not sell the rec amount of records that we sold, mm. um, apart from Oasis, I would, I would say. And apart from Adele, it would sell truckloads of, mm. uh, of uh, stuff. But if you look at the sales of A, a number one, you'd be needing to do 100,000 sales per day yes. to get a number one in the 70s. And the Christmas song did quarter of a million in one day when it came out in 1973, which was phenomenal. Yeah. Um, and did you did you find the band got the sound? You know, Because obviously, a bit like David Bowie, you spent a lot of the 60s kind of 
doing different things, what David Bowie did. And it sounded like you were quite similar before you sort of hit that moment. You think, oh, it started to work. You know, we've, we've got something that is, is starting to sort of pick up um, a wider audi- audience. Yes. Um, well, we, we started, we had a, we had a definite direction. If you look at a certain set of singles, such as Come and Feel the Noise, Mob are all crazy now. They have these rock, rock elements in them. They're all about audiences and noise and shouting and fun. And, and our directness is that we were never... So, some groups were a bit more prog rock. We call it prog rock, right? And they were very much into the idea of being big in America. We were very British, very cut through the crap, cut through the snootiness of some of the bands. And we just shot to the forefront doing what we do well, which basically is we played uh, rock and roll, really. We, we were a great rock and roll band. Or Nod and I agreed. When I was writing the book and Nod was sitting there discussing it, he said at the end of the day, he, Noddy's a little Richard singer, powerful voice like little Richard in America. And that's, that's the kind of stuff we really loved, you know. And so our strength was always directness in the way rock and roll is. Some people say, oh, rock and roll's easy. Well, it's actually not. It might be the simplicity of the chords. And there's usually only three or four. Yeah. It's not that. It's the style and rhythm and power of a lot of things like Jerry Lewis, Chuck Berry, people like that. Listen to the song. Great lyrics, great lyrics and and really good groovy happening band. You know, they had they were happening on records, you know, and that's what we got. We fundamentally had four people in the band and we didn't really employ other people to come in and start playing keyboards across our records or saxophones or things like that. It was very rare for us to ever ask anybody to play on our records. We did later when we made a film and we needed <laughs> yes. a soundtrack, but that's the only time we got brass. And also, there, we thought, well, and I was so, going to, sorry, I was going to say at that time you were talking about success. I mean, there was there was you, and there was kind of people like Mark Boland who was sort of vying for that number one oh, yeah, spot. Mark, yeah. I mean, well, Mark, um, Mark, I, I much admired, as we all did. Mark was in the charts long before we were. Uh, he was the sort of, for me, probably the start of something that was a guy with uh, a kind of woman's hairstyle in a way, you know, long, curly hair. But he had that kind of crossover of, of androgynous sort of way of the... Uh, wearing clothes and playing with two sides of the coin. And, and that's what I did really. I mean, watching him, his charisma was, was great on TV. I, he wore a little teardrop under his eye and I thought that was brilliant. And, and the kind of, that kind of, um, late sixties clothing, which got to get colorful, you know, Robin black and white, he started to go that way. And I really loved that. Yeah. Period where I got into the silver clothes and the glitter and, and it was so much, so much fun and colored television came in to, came into Britain and uh, people started seeing color 
not black and white. So that made it even better to do that, you know, to have, when they turn the telly on, a lot of people would turn the telly on to see what I was wearing. Yeah. Well, it, it, was, I mean, it, it, was a, it was an amazing time for the charts because you had all the sort of the glam rock period, which was happening. But obviously, and, and obviously, you know, everything you touched during that very early 70s was going terribly well until that dreadful sort of accident in 73. Yes, that's true. Yeah. And then, you know, because I sort of realised but you know, with most bands, you know, they, they do have that kind of, yes, it was going well, it was going well. And then something happens and, and you never, you know, it's always something. And, and with you... Well, it, to be honest with you, Dave, I looked at that, what you just said. Um, when life is... John Lennon makes a, um, a very interesting quote. He said, life is happening when you're busy making plans. And life certainly happened then. We were on the top of the cake in 1973, right? We'd, we would just come and feel the noise was number one, and then the squeeze me, please me came out and went straight to number one. We were doing Earl's Court, right? We had had a huge success. Tubes full of people with top hats and glitter, and it was a big event at the Earl's Court in London. And uh, we were staying at the Holiday Inn, I remember that. And Donna got this big white Bentley Roller type car. And he'd, um, he was planning to marry my sister's friend, who was Angela. Yes. And uh, there's a picture in my book of Angela and standing by my wife. Um, and they, it, it all seemed to be wonderful. You know, it was all sort of, I know things, bad things happen in our lives. Some things come along that we'll learn about and some things come along slowly like a bad disease or something. Oh, I've heard you've got so-and-so. But this was nothing like that. This was like a real kick. I mean, I was in bed when I had the phone call at four o'clock in the morning, Right. And at first, I thought he'd just had a bump in the car because I'd come back from London, number one in the charts, and we were due to do Top of the Pops, right? So it was all going on, so this is brilliant. And then I get this phone call, and I answered it, and I said, what's going on? I said, uh, I think Don's had a bump. Oh, right, okay. Okay, I'll let you know. And, and it was something like that, you know, it's right. all a bit vague. I thought he'd just bumped into, you know, a, a temporary bumped into a car or something, you know. And then the phone went again, and then Dad was on the phone, and then Dan had to ring somebody, and then my sister answered the phone, and she rung up. Um, she found out Don was uh, that it was a bad accident, right? And I heard a scream actually. Um, she rung. Angela, that's the girl who got killed, she rung her father and said, I've just heard there's been an accident, Bloomberg. What's happened to Angela? And what's happened to Don? He said, well, Don's still alive. He says, but Angela's dead. Wow. And it was just, it was like, um, I don't know, like an arrow in, the, in your heart. It was, uh, it don't get much worse. You know, it was like, and I, I couldn't equate it. I couldn't equate what I was thinking you know, I couldn't make sense of what I was thinking. I was just 
going, oh my god. And 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 then of course you, you know, up comes the manager from London. You know, Don's in hospital, intensive care. And at first he wasn't expected to live. Um, at first, well, but then there was a gathering of the band, and then Chaz comes up, and and uh, and then we get a little bit of news that uh, he's not going to die. But we don't realise that he's damaged. We don't know. But the business with Angela's death overshadowed everything as as like. And of course, you don't know what you're going to do. You don't know what it's whether it's the end of a band or the end of this or end of that. But you're not really thinking about you know the band. You're just thinking about Don. And, yeah. And for me, it was even harder because I formed the band with him. And and so it was almost like a death, you know. It was like a well, it was a death. Yes. Don wasn't dead, but there was a death, and and I couldn't make any sense of it. And um, and I was due to go away with Don to America because I was going to get married to my wife, my now wife, in America. So that was going on. <laughs> um, so obviously we didn't appear on top of the pops. They just showed, I think, Pan's people or the dancers dancing to the tune, you see. But everybody knew, and it was all across the headlines and news, and it was a really terrible, really I mean, terrible and time. Did, and, I mean, the band after that, it it just kind of, did it just feel like things had just changed and it was a totally different chapter? Uh, well, it was. It was never going to be the same. Um, not with the... I mean, Don. Uh, I mean, we we were going. We've got to we've got to make this work, and so Don is, you know, he's, one side of his head shaved with a massive scar. <coughs> I'll go into hospital and see him. And Don is a peculiar person because he's telling jokes. I mean, you're going what? But he doesn't know who his girlfriend is. She doesn't doesn't know her because he's had a bang on his head, you see. So he doesn't know. So no one told him his girlfriend was dead. So he doesn't know that. And the other thing he doesn't know is that he's lost his taste and smell, but he doesn't know that either. Right. So nobody says anything to him. His mom and dad are there. And, but they said he's going to make it. And when he was telling jokes, I mean, it was so peculiar and bizarre. Um, and um, then they moved into a, uh, a place of rest, you know, to recoup. And Chaz said to me, and Don's brothers, Derek, said, go to America, Dave. Um, Don will be all right. Go to America and get married. And I did. I went to America knowing he was all right, but I didn't know. How we going how we were gonna make it work, you see. So we come back and then obviously we have the realisation of of his um of the dramatic side of it. And he at, at, at first forgot all the songs that he, that he played on. So if we didn't think how the heck we're gonna play, you know. But it was a slow process of um of us trying to find a way 
of uh, Riosin. Uh, but what seemed to happen is that if you could trigger the intro to one of the songs, seemingly he'd remember the rest of it. So that's how we started. We started to work back. Right. And, uh, and it, was te- it was really hard on us, uh, Don's memory. And it still, it still has a problem with some things, N- not the songs, but um, he, can, he has to write things down the night before he does it the next day so so he knows what he's doing the next day because he can forget to get the short uh, short-term memory is really bad yeah. but on the next day he looks and goes oh yes I'm doing that I'm doing this he's okay he's on his he's survived since those days but at first we had to t- take it bit by bit and um, the Christmas song for instance Dave uh, was the first time we had to record it differently right uh, none of us really knew the song except for Nod and Jim, but when we were in the studio in New York, we had to build it up. So we kind of got the feel of the track, but we had to redo the drums, which we never do. We always do the drums with the main track and keep the drums. But we had to approach the Christmas song differently to help Don. But it did improve, and he started to remember. And uh, but and then, of course, he finds out he can't. You know, he can't smell something, he can't taste it. Well, imagine what life's like without that, you know. That's two major senses gone. Yeah. But, but you know, we we supported him, we were behind him, we tried to help him, and, and we did, and we, we got back. And you know what? At the end of that year, we go back to number one, don't we? Yes, absolutely, which is amazing. So there is a good result. Uh, the, the difficulty was the loss. Um and 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 that, but I don't think, in all the years I've known him, that he remembers everything at all. And he certainly doesn't remember the accident. He doesn't remember any of that. He doesn't know who was driving or any of that. He just doesn't remember. And that's the way it is. But he's here with me, and we're both 71. We're enjoying what we're doing. We've still got it together. He's still a great drummer. So life's good in that way. It's good. Like well, my book, like my book. Yes. Survival. You know, the stroke could have killed me. Uh, the depression could have, I mean, it sent me off on the tangent of, of um, how can I put it? It sent me off on the tangent of, of suicidal thoughts. I wouldn't have done it, though, but I had those thoughts because... Bad depression does that to you. But I'm really well now. I mean, apart from when I got knocked over by a bicycle on Brighton (laughs) Brighton Promenade 12 months ago, uh, I hope to have a better Christmas this year. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Just, just, Dave, just one last question, which I I always love asking people who've been in the music world for a long time. What would you say to your 18-year-old self who was starting out in that interesting world? Well... I'm glad you asked that, um, because there are things in life which you think, oh, it would have been better if I'd have checked that, or it would have been, you know, I could have done this, and I, oh, you know, would I relive the life, and I'd make sure that was so-and-so. I'll be honest with you, Dave, I would say my life, I'm not including the stroke, I'm not including the bad accident, or, or Don's accident in this. 
but I would live the rest of it exactly the same because I think my experience of my life, which is in that book, has come to a, a situation where I've never been rich with money as regards Slade, and, but I'm rich in family. And I think the other aspect of my life is that the journey, which is still going on, is still the most interesting thing. You know, the 18-year-old the Dave turned professional, grew his hair, looked like one of the Beatles, but loved it, and then developed his own style, right? I think that experience and, and all the ups and downs, which you will love, are all part of the process. Because sometimes people might say, well, of course, you know, some people earn millions and millions and retire and don't do much. Well, I, I favor the fact that you get up in the morning and you know you've got something to do and you want to do. And I'm in a job, say it's a job, but it's a job I love. I'm in something that gives great joy to people. And because of the benefits of everything we did in that, in Slade, in the 70s, and the, and the 80s, we had it's have benefited me in my future life, and are still benefiting me now. So it's not like I really want to pack because I've got a mansion in the middle of nowhere. I don't need a mansion in the middle of nowhere. I like to be around people. So I would say, if I had the choice, obviously, I'd like mom to be well, of course. There are some things which weren't good. But my, my personal experience of life, uh, I would say, as far as the journey, I think, I think it's been right for me. And where I am now is probably the best place I should be. Um, and as I say, it's, it's, it's ongoing. You're 70-odd. Uh, the road isn't as long as it was when I was 18. But I'm not thinking about that particularly. I'm just thinking we all have this life. And let's make it a good shot for ourselves. We're not sure what's afterwards, if there's anything at all, because nobody's really proved <laughs> that one. But, but to be honest with you, where I am and what I do gives me great joy, and it gives other people great joy in a world which is not so great uh, with the problems we're living with. But if you come to one of my gigs, you'll probably understand the atmosphere and feeling that you get from it. And it's, it's, I'm glad I'm, I was in this band that had so many great songs that you can always be glad to play. Yes, absolutely. Oh, Dave, that's fantastic. Well, thank you for good, giving me the time. Also, I just wonder, just one, just one little favour. Is it possible, because I would use it, um, I could use this as a sort of little advert for the show, to say, hi, this is Dave Hill from Slade, wishing you a happy Christmas on Future Radio. Tune in to the C86 show with David Eastall. God, is that... Yeah. Yeah, is that... Are, yeah. You, are you able to just do that? And then I could just take that out, and that would be amazing. Uh, how do I do that? Oh, yeah, if you just say, hi, this is Dave Hill from Slade... Oh, which... well, you mean as I'm talking to you? Yeah, and oh, then, yeah. I'll, then I can record it. If you just say, hi, this is Dave Hill from Slade, wishing you all a very... Happy Christmas at Future Radio. Yeah. Tune in to the CH... On Future Radio. Yeah, that would be... Okay. And, and tune in to listen to David Eastall. That would be great. Let's just write 
Oh, yeah. Well, you're David. I'm David. If you pronounce it East and then Door, A-U-G-H, but if you just say East Door, that East would... Door. Yeah, just write it down as East Door. That's how you... I've pro- got it written down. It's E-S-T-A-U-G-H. Yeah, that's right, yes. Is but, it East Door? Well, people say I should pronounce East Door as in door. East Door. Door, yeah. as in East Door. But if yeah. you say, hi, this is Dave Hill from Slade, wishing you all a very Merry Christmas. Um, tune in to the C86 show with David Eastall on Future Radio. Have. Okay. That would be amazing. You okay, then, after okay. you. Right, let's uh, just give me a second. Right, okay, let's go. Hi there to all listeners. This is David from Slade, and I'm wishing you all a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. I hope you get a chance to read my book about my life and everything. But uh, I've done this wonderful interview with David Eastall on Future Radio, and that's been worth doing today. Wish you all well, Dave Hill. That's magic, Dave. That's really good. And like I said, thank you ever so much for the time, and and also for your okay. hon- and for your honesty on the book because it was um, it's one well, of those uh, classics, yeah, really. That's, you know? uh, I appreciate your time as well. I mean, you do what you do, and I do what I do. But together, we can make something work, can't we? So hopefully, I can help some people and uh, help your show as well. Yeah. So enjoy yourself, mate, and have a nice Christmas. You too. Take care, Dave. Bye bye. Bye bye. And that was me in conversation with Dave Hill from Slade Who's Book. So here it is, how the boy from Wolverhampton rocked the world with Slade. And as I said, that came out in 2017. Still available. Do check it out. Anyway, this has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can. It's a free world. You can via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just go to at C86show and um, keep it positive and groovy as always. And uh, yes, all these shows have been archived, so you can find them on Spotify, Podbean, iTunes and Mixcloud. There you go. Anyway, thank you ever so much for listening. If you still are, who knows? <laughs>